Hello, and welcome to our next installment of recent U.S. history since 1877. My name is Dr. Esmacher, and today we'll be talking about the origins of the Cold War. We'll be talking about what exactly the term Cold War means, how long the Cold War lasted, who are the major players, and some of the early developments in the Cold War. So by the end of today, you'll be fully equipped to talk about some of the major players and key concepts in the, the early history of the Cold War. So Cold War as a concept is a war that never goes hot. So in other words, think of it like a kind of aggressive sort of posturing, if that makes sense. So the Cold War, the two sides, the Soviet Union and the United States, will never go directly into military conflict against each other during this duration. The Cold War officially ends in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But where the Cold War starts is a little bit of a trickier question. So the Cold War, again, the United States and the Soviet Union are the two main antagonists. They never directly go into armed conflict over one another. And we'll talk about some of the the ways in which they can still try to get at each other without armed conflict. But when it starts depends on who you ask and what event you privilege. A lot of historians will toss out the date 1947, and we'll talk about why 1947 is oftentimes tossed out as the start of the Cold War today. But really, I and a lot of historians of World War II would argue that the Cold War effectively begins with the end of World War II. So in order to talk about how the Cold War starts, we need to talk about the last uh, couple months of World War II and how the ending of World War II sets the tone for the beginning of the Cold War. So the last few months of World War II are very chaotic. As we go into early 1945, the Allies have made a lot of progress in going up against Germany. The Soviets are pushing from the east towards Germany. The other allies are coming in after the landing at Normandy and D-Day of June in June 1944 from the West. So Germany is being pressured from both sides. Italy, remember, is already knocked out of the war and they switched over to the Allied side at this point. And in February of 1945, the Soviets were only about 60 to 90 miles outside of the capital of Berlin in Germany. So the end of World War II, FDR, or Franklin Delano Roosevelt, will not live to see the end of the war. He had been elected to an unprecedented fourth term in 1944, but unfortunately will pass away due to illness in April of 1945. Shortly thereafter, in early May of 1945, Germany will finally surrender. Uh, Adolf Hitler commits suicide in his bunker, and the war in Europe is officially ended with the surrender of Germany. However, Japan is still involved in the war. And while the United States' island-hopping campaign has paid off in getting the U.S. close enough to engage in bombing campaigns against Japan, Japan still so shows no signs of surrender. So how does World War II officially end with Japan? Originally, the Allies had an agreement that the Soviet Union, who had only been in war against Germany and Italy, would wait a period of at least three months before entering into war against Japan. Japan will 
be the victim of the first and thus far only deployment of atomic weapons to definitively end World War II. The United States gave the reason that they saw deployment of this brand new weapon, which had just been successfully tested in July of 1945, as justified because they would potentially be saving uh, millions of lives that they projected they would lose in a land invasion of Japan, both Allied servicemen as well as soldiers and citizens in Japan. So the United States have been working behind the scenes on this new technology of the atomic bomb, and they're not the only ones. In 1940, before the United States ever formally declared uh, their entry into the war, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was approached by Albert Einstein. Yes, that famous E equals MC squared, Albert Einstein. And Albert Einstein, who was himself a refugee from Europe, a Jewish refugee from Europe and a scientist, expressed concern to Franklin Delano Roosevelt that the Nazis were likely to attempt to develop an atomic weapon. And so the United States decided that the only course of action for them was to try to beat the Nazis at developing atomic weaponry. So this results in the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project is a top secret project research into atomic weapons between 1940 and 1945, with the first successful testing taking place. So in July, after the successful test, there was a, I would say, veiled threat warning to Japan that they should consider surrendering sooner rather than later, or else face the consequences. And when Japan did not surrender, the United States dropped the first bomb at Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. And then when Japan still did not initially surrender, they dropped a second bomb on Nagasaki on August 9, 1945. Combined, those two bombs killed about 200,000 people initially. I say initially because at the time, there was very little awareness of the long-term effects of radiation from atomic bombs, and so many other people suffered health conditions and passed away later due to the long-term effects of this bombing in Japan. So the United States, again, justified the use of this by saying that even though people died, it would be far less people than would die during a potential full-fledged invasion of Japan. And Japan officially surrendered on August 15th, 1945. This was actually about a week after the Soviet Union officially entered the war in the Pacific. So the Soviet Union officially entered World War II against Japan right after the bombing of Hiroshima. So with the end of World War II, with the surrender finally of Japan on August 15th, 1945, World War II officially came to a close. The human cost of World War II is tremendous. We don't have an exact death toll because war is very messy inherently by its nature. And it's estimated anywhere from 50 to 60 million people died during World War II. And this includes both combatants and non-combatants. An estimated 20 million people in this total are civilians, reflecting again the human cost of war, but also the notion that because of total war, civilians are valuable assets to war effort and therefore acceptable targets of violence and things like bombing campaigns. Of those people lost, if we look at the 60 million estimate, about 20 million of those dead were from the Soviet Union. Only about a third of that number were actually combatants. The rest were civilians. 15 million uh, Chinese lost their lives. 6 million Poles. 
six million Jews lost their lives in the Holocaust or Germany's uh, systemic campaign of genocide. And because of the Holocaust, the word genocide will enter into our language and our usage. The United Nations, which we'll talk about in a little bit, formally adopts the coining of the term genocide to define what had happened to the Jewish people. And this is certainly not the first genocide in world history, but it's definitely the first time that the term genocide was applied. The Germans had targeted not only the Jewish people, but also members of the Roma ethnic group. You may know them better as gypsies, although they consider that term a slur. They also targeted people who were religiously different from them, groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, and people who were politically different from them, so people like communists. They also targeted folks who were LGBTQ. So about 6 million Jews perished in the Holocaust, 4 million Germans died, 2 million Japanese, 400,000 British, and about 300,000 Americans. So the death toll is definitely very, very high for the Americans during World War II, but a drop in the bucket compared to some of the other nations. Now, World War II was marked with a number of atrocities, most notably, obviously, the Holocaust, but also things like firebombing campaigns. Firebombing was the use of special incendiary bombs that were designed not only to explode on contact, but to catch things on fire and to do more auxiliary damage after they had been dropped. The firebombing particularly hit hard in places like Dresden, Germany, and in Tokyo, where the firebombing in Tokyo, March 1945, killed 100,000 people and destroyed about 25% of the city. So again, things like the firebombings were controversial because of how much damage it did to civilians. Even the civilians were, again, oftentimes seen as acceptable targets. In addition to all the lives lost during World War II, we also have millions of people displaced the war. People who are now refugees, who are homeless, large areas are physically destroyed. And so the period following World War II is going to involve a lot of rebuilding and planning. And that is part of the reason why the United States, the Soviet Union, the French, and the British all started meeting during World War II. So throughout the war, but especially after 1943, when the tide of the word War seems to shift over to the Allies following the victory in the Battle of the Atlantic against German submarines, the victory against the Japanese Navy at Midway in the Pacific. The Allies start to hold meetings to plan the post-war world. Now, this alliance between the Allies was very fragile. If you looked at these nations prior to World War II, One of these things is not like the other. Particularly, the Soviet Union stands out in the Allies as the only communist nation, whereas the United States, Great Britain, and France were very much not communist. And in fact, in the case of the United States, was very skeptical and and wary of communists. And that's actually a thing that Adolf Hitler banked on, was that the Allies could never realistically last because eventually they would turn on one another. He was so confident that this would happen that he predicted his victory, that all he had to do was last long enough for the Allies to start infighting with one another. However, he grossly misunderestimated how... How misunderestimated is that a word? Yes. He grossly underestimated, there we go, how much the Allies hated him. As Winston Churchill famously said, 
If Hitler invaded hell, I would make favorable recommendations on behalf of the devil in the House of Commons. So in other words, we would be willing to ally with the devil or Satan uh, to stop Adolf Hitler. Like that was the extent that the allies were willing to beat him. Now, Adolf Hitler was right. Eventually, the allies will collapse in infighting. He's just wrong about them doing it before he wins. So the seeds of allied collapse are planted during these post-war planning sessions that start in July 1944 at Bretton Woods. Probably most famously, though, are the conferences held in 1945, as the Allies were increasingly sure of their victory, impending victory against Germany and Japan. The Yalta Conference, held in February of 1945, was attended by Joseph Stalin, representing the Soviet Union, Winston Churchill, representing Great Britain, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt of the United States. At this meeting, Roosevelt arranged for Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union to enter war against Japan within two to three months of knocking out Germany, which, as we mentioned, they did. And it convinced the Soviet Union to enter into a new organization known as the United Nations that would be formed. So the United Nations, which we still have today, was considered a improved version of Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations idea from World War I. The League of Nations collapsed due to the fact that they needed to have unanimous decisions to do anything, and they have very little enforcement power. So this is why the UN tweaked this. We have UN peacekeeping troops, for example, that can be sent in. You don't require unanimous agreement to censure a nation if they're doing something they shouldn't. So getting the Soviet Union to buy into the United Nations was a big move. They also agreed at Yalta that Axis war criminals would be tried in international courts to be held at Nuremberg, Germany, for those war criminals in the European theater, and Tokyo for those in the Pacific. All powers committed to the idea of allowing free elections as soon as possible in newly liberated territory. Now, at that time, the Soviets have a great degree of leverage because, again, they're very close to Berlin in February of 1945. And Stalin insisted at the Yalta conference that the supervision of liberation of these territories, of restoring normalcy, having elections again, be supervised by the Allied power that had liberated the territory. Meaning, since the Soviets had liberated the territory in Eastern Europe, they would be in charge of installing uh, new governments and ensuring elections in places like Poland, whereas the Western Allies would be in charge of Western Europe. The second conference held in 1945 is the Potsdam Conference. This one takes place in July and August of 1945, so Franklin Delano Roosevelt is dead. He is replaced by Harry Truman, who succeeds as president following the death of Roosevelt. So Truman represents the United States here. And Truman insists that nations be allowed to be capitalist and democratic. Because he's afraid, justifiably so, that Joseph Stalin is going to want to install communist governments in Eastern Europe. Truman also casually mentions to Joseph Stalin uh, during this conference that, oh, by the way, we've just successfully tested an atomic bomb. So the compromise that they achieve at the Potsdam Conference is that the Axis nations, so Germany, Japan, 
will be dis disempowered and in the case of Germany divided because Germany had now gotten involved in starting two world wars in a row. We were really afraid of them going at it again. The Soviets would be responsible for territories they had liberated, the United States for territories it had liberated. So effectively, after Potsdam, the Soviet Union takes control of Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Romania, and Bulgaria. And in fact, they will install communist governments and ban all other political parties. And in the West, the United States will take over the western half of Germany, while the Soviets take over the eastern half. Berlin, even though it's entirely within eastern Germany, will be divided as well. And while Japan will escape division, Korea, because reasons, will be divided as well. So with this tension at these conferences that emerges between the Soviet Union and the United States, we officially have the beginning of the Cold War. So as World War II draws to a close, the lines have now been drawn, the gauntlet thrown down between the United States and the Soviet Union. After the World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union emerge as the two global superpowers. Nobody else is still left to compete. Great Britain, who had formerly been a great power, is going to be busy rebuilding and they will also lose a lot of their colonial territory. So, and Germany, as we're going to talk about, is divided, defeated. So really the United States and the Soviet Union are the big kids on the block, so to speak. These two nations have two very different political and economic ideologies. For the United States, they believe in democracy, free elections, in terms of their political states, and in terms of their economic status, the United States embraces capitalism. The Soviet Union is communist, which means that they will only allow the Communist Party. It's a more authoritarian style of government, and they also believe that government should control the means of production, so it's not capitalist. What this does is this creates what we call a bipolar world. This is not a world with a mental condition or needing medication. What we mean is the world literally divides into two camps. You're either with the United States and capitalism and democracy, or you're with the Soviet Union and communism. The truth is a little bit more complicated, as we'll get to in future sessions, but for the most part, this is true, that the United States and the Soviet Union see this as a very clear conflict, us versus them, you're either with us or you're against us. So the Axis nations, excluding Italy, which remember it already changed sides, officially are occupied by the Allies as the war comes to a close. Germany will be formally divided in the East. The Soviet Union will take over Germany and Eastern Berlin. In the West, the West is actually divided up into three pieces, one controlled by the British, one by the French, one by the Americans, and Ber West Berlin will also be divided up in the same way. Korea, as a sort of contested space between Japan and the Soviet Union, will similarly be divided into two. We'll talk more about that shortly. And the division in Europe was probably sharper than anything else. This division in Europe between the communist East and the capitalist democratic West was so sharp that it led Winston Churchill to coin the phrase Iron Curtain. So in his speech, Churchill famously described an Iron Curtain descending across Europe, the stark difference in nations on either side of this political divide between 
the Western democratic capitalist states and the Eastern communist states. In the wake of the Cold War, the United States decided that they needed to address this burgeoning Cold War. And one of the things that the United States started to come up with was the strategy of containment. So containment was a strategy developed by a long-standing diplomat for the State Department, George F. Kennan. And Kennan developed the idea of containment while serving as a diplomat in Moscow. He was stationed in many different places in his life, including Latin America. His diaries are really interesting. So Kennan made the argument that the United States should not try to roll back communism, that the Soviet Union was too large and too powerful, and we really couldn't do that without starting World War III. So instead, Kennan, in his famous Lawn Telegram, decided that the best course of action for the United States would be to contain or stop the spread of communism, to prevent any more nation states in the world from embracing communism as their political ideology. Kennan felt that that was a much more achievable goal, and that's actually going to be the overarching foreign policy for the duration of the Cold War. So buckle up, we're going to be talking about containment for the vast majority of the rest of this series. So the idea of containment is formally expressed in 1947 by Harry Truman in what he calls the Truman Doctrine. So the Truman Doctrine was Harry Truman applying the policy of containment in response to growing concerns of political unrest in places like Greece and Turkey. In Greece and Turkey, there was a sense during this rebuilding time after World War II of some folks who wanted to dabble in more leftist political ideas like communism. And in the case of both Greece and Turkey, these were people from Greece and Turkey advocating for this. Nevertheless, Harry Truman and others saw this as a potential for the expansion of communism. And in the Truman Doctrine, Harry Truman will commit formally, publicly, to a policy of containment, promising that the United States will provide aid to any nation. As he puts it, I believe it, it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. So when Truman issues this doctrine on March 12, 1947, this formalizes the idea of containment policy, and thus 1947 is often cited as the beginning of the Cold War, because that is when Truman formally adopts a policy of containment. So what does containment look like realistically during this early phase of the Cold War? Well, the very first thing that a lot of these Western nations are concerned about is making sure that communism isn't appealing to these rebuilding nations. Because people in times of desperation and despair and facing a long process of rebuilding, generally are more willing to experiment with more extreme political ideas. So the fact that Europe is literally in ruins, many places are still having to ration supplies, makes the Allies very worried that communism might find a foothold in Western Europe as well. So the United States commits to a economic development plan called the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan was named after former General and then Secretary of State George C. Marshall. And the Marshall Plan provided $13 billion in 1948 money, not today's money, $13 billion to rebuild infrastructure and 
help the economy get back on its feet in Western European nations. So the idea was if we give them aid money, they will rebuild faster, therefore they will be less tempted by communism. The Soviets' response, because the theme of the Cold War is anything you can do, I can do better, the Soviets' response is their own assistance program called Comicon, or the Council for Mutual Economic Assistance. They found that one in 1949, a year later, and similarly, this is aid money to rebuild the economies and the infrastructure of Eastern European nations. Comicon also tried to encourage trade within the Soviet sphere of influence, discourage trade with Western nations to try to minimize the amount of capitalist democratic influence in Eastern Europe. So as we've already mentioned, Germany is divided because people are deathly afraid that Germany will start crap again. And Eastern Germany and Eastern Berlin are controlled by the Soviet Union. Whereas West Germany and West Berlin are divided into three pieces between the French, the British, and the Americans. Where this starts to get a bit sticky is in 1948. So the Allies start to propose, at least the Western part of the Allies, start to propose that Germany, Western Germany, should be unified. So in other words, like the Eastern section is only controlled by the Soviet Union, there was an attempt to unify Western German zones into one. So when the American, French, and the British occupation zones in West Germany and West Berlin officially become unified, the Soviet Union responds with a blockade of Berlin. So Berlin previously had been connected to West Germany via certain sanctioned travel corridors, and the Soviet Union basically shuts that down. Nobody can get in or out of West Berlin. They are cut off from the outside world starting on June 24th, 1948. American and British military respond to this blockade with the Berlin Airlift, which will last for nearly a full year and sees the British and the American militaries using planes to airdrop supplies into Western Berlin. The Soviets will only cease the blockade in May of 1949 after seeing that the Allies are willing to sustain this airlift as long as is necessary. In May 1949, the Western occupied zones officially merge and become the Federal Republic of Germany, better known as West Germany. And in the East, in response to this, the Soviets grant Eastern Germany its own nation status and they become known as the German Democratic Republic, or East Germany. Berlin will still remain divided into West and East Berlin, with West Berlin technically belonging to West Germany, East Berlin for East Germany. Germany will remain divided until the end of the Cold War, and still today you can see the lingering effects of this division if you go and visit Germany. Now, with the two new Germanys forming as nation-states, there's a concern over militarization in Europe. The Soviet Union, understandably, is a little nervous about having Germany in any form, exist again on their western border after being invaded repeatedly by Germany in two world wars. And so there's this desire to try to shore up their defenses in the event of an attack. The same is true in Western Europe as well. Western Europe is very aware of the potential for expansion of communism because in the OG or original communism, this 
basically says you have to have a worldwide revolution for the revolution to truly be successful. Now, that's not really the case in the Soviet Union. They haven't really adopted that we must expand across the world brand of communism. But there is this very real fear in the West that they might. So the Western nations gather together to form NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is established in 1949 and led originally by the United States and included member nations like Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Great Britain, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal. And as of 1955, when they're allowed to rearm again, Western Germany will join NATO as well. And NATO still exists today. The Soviets again developed their own military alliance system in 1955 after Western Germany is allowed to rearm, and they call this the Warsaw Pact. So it's similarly made up of the Soviet Union and communist nations in Eastern Europe. This is especially relevant because in 1949, the Soviet Union develops their own atomic bomb. So the United States no longer is the only nation with atomic weaponry in the world. Now both sides of the Cold War have atomic weapons, and many other nation states will also successfully develop their own atomic weapons programs as well during the 1950s and 1960s. Despite the initial focus on the potential for the expansion of communism in Europe, really the earliest hotspot of the Cold War is going to be in Asia. In 1949, China officially becomes a communist nation, the Chinese communists winning the Ilan Enduring Civil War. So communists and nationalists in China have been at war with one another over the control of China since the early 1900s, the fall of the Qin Dynasty, Qing Dynasty, in 1911 had led to a little bit of an unsteady period in Chinese politics following that, the initial Republic of China, and then the struggle over the future of China between communists and nationalists. And in 1949, the nationalists under Jiang Jiaxi, or you may also know his name as Chiang Kai-shek, fled to Taiwan, leaving mainland China to the communists under Mao Zedong. Both the nationalists in Taiwan and the communists in mainland China claim to be the legit China. So this led to a somewhat sticky situation for a long time in the Cold War over who do you officially recognize as China? Because the nationalists in Taiwan were much more democratic-leaning and capitalist versus the mainland China, obviously the bigger population of Chinese people, but communist. This alarmed the United States and other Western allies when China became communist because this was clearly a failure of this containment policy. We hadn't been able to prevent China from becoming communist. We now have a huge population in the world now living under a communist state. And there's this very real concern that the Soviet Union and China will now become BFFs, close allies. The reality, though, is if you looked at communism, the communism of China and the communism of the Soviet Union were very different from one another. And oftentimes, they violently disagreed with one another over policies and ideas. The communism in China was far more sort of, yes, we should aggressively expand, whereas the Soviet Union was a little bit less of the we need to achieve worldwide revolution strain of communism. 
And nevertheless, though, to the outside world, a communist was a communist was a communist. There wasn't really an attempt, a big attempt in the United States, at least popularly, to differentiate between these different forms of communism. So with China becoming communist, this leads to a directive known as NSC 68, which is a further directive related to containment. So containment now becomes truly global with the United States no longer just committing aid, but also committing, if necessary, troops to go in and to prevent the spread of communism. So now we're, we're backing up. We're putting our money where our mouth is, so to speak. We're no longer just saying we'll provide aid. We're now explicitly saying we, will, we are willing to get involved in military uh, exercises and engagements to prevent the spread of communism. And that actually happened pretty quickly with Korea. So Korea was one of these sliced up nation states that were very popular at the end of World War II. Korea had been divided at the 38th parallel, with Northern Korea occupied by the Soviets and Southern Korea occupied by the United States. What was supposed to be a temporary division became more permanent in 1948, with Southern Korea officially forming the Republic of Korea, led by an anti-communist and fairly conservative President Syngman Rhee, and Northern Korea becoming the People's Democratic Republic of Korea, led by Communist President Kim Il-sung. The problem with this now separate division in Korea was that both Koreas claimed to be the real, legitimate Korea that should have control of all of Korea, not just half of it. Both leaders claimed to be the true head of a single sovereign Korea, and the other leader was just some dude who was trying to steal territory. So this will result in the Korean War, which begins in 1950, technically is still ongoing because they've never signed a peace treaty. The North Korean government invaded South Korea in 1950, capturing the capital of Seoul and declaring that they were doing so to reunify Korea under what they again claimed was the legitimate Korean government. This was the first military engagement for UN peacekeeping troops. So the United Nations will send in troops from a coalition of member nations, including the United States, to push the North Koreans back to the 38th parallel and defend South Korea. And the thinking among the UN was that the Soviets must have encouraged this invasion into Korea. The United States, meanwhile, under generals like Douglas MacArthur, believed that while they were there in Korea along the 38th parallel, the borderline, they had a good opportunity to unite Korea under the leadership of South Korea. That would install an American-friendly government in Korea, and again, capitalist and democratic. And so the United States troops, without the support of the United Nations peacekeeping guys who were like, look, this is not, we've done our job, we've restored the, the border. American troops launched an invasion of North Korea, and they invaded and occupied the capital of Pyongyang. Meanwhile, the Chinese, again, remember, communists for about a year now, warned the United States that they were infringing upon the Chinese sphere of influence, and if they continued their invasion of North Korea, that China would become involved as well. In the end, a combined Chinese and North Korean force pushed the Americans back over the 38th parallel by 1951, and both sides spent the next two years in an effective stalemate at the border between North and South Korea, which is 
resulted in the deaths of about 3 million Koreans, mostly civilians. At the end of 1953, both sides declared a ceasefire. Again, this is largely what's been in place since 1953. There have been recent overtures towards finally signing a peace treaty and formally ending the war, but technically the conflict is still on. With the Korean War, there was a real concern that Asia would now become the forefront of the attempt to contain communism. And so the United States and other nations formed CETO, or the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, which was basically an Asian version of NATO. They were especially concerned that the main democratic capitalist nation left in Asia other than South Korea at that time was Japan, which, again, we had recently been at war with. So as we get into the early 1950s, there is a definite concern over the direction of the Cold War. We had already seen both sides at this point develop atomic bombs. We had already seen uh, increasing conflict and stalemate between the Soviet Union and the other allies in Germany with the Berlin blockade. We'd seen it in Korea with the Korean War. And many people criticized the Cold War at this early point in time for being a conflict that was constantly framed as black or white, that there was no middle ground, no shades of gray in between. It was either the communists are completely right or the democratic capitalists are completely right. And many people criticize this, especially as we'll talk about in a future installment, these newly independent nations that have formerly been colonies, they really don't want to get involved in the Cold War and would rather have an option C rather than choose between just the Soviet Union and the United States. There's also going to be, as we're going to talk about at home in the United States, a real problem with how the Cold War is applied at home. There's this sense of needing to subject Americans to a purity test that expressing any kind of support of a political idea leaning to the left, socially smacked of communism. And as we're going to talk about, this has a pretty chilling effect on things like free speech and on certain rights movements, especially the civil rights movement. And lastly, as as I've briefly touched on, we're going to see a a process known as decolonization after World War II. So all of these former colonies of places like Germany, Italy, France, Great Britain are going to start to become independent, whether given their independence voluntarily or whether they end up in wars for independence and taking their independence from their former imperial nations. And that's going to be a messy process as well. Particularly, this is going to lead to a lot of conflict involving the U.S. and the Soviet Union through a phenomenon known as proxy wars that we'll talk about in a future installment. So in other words, the United States and Soviet Union aren't directly fighting each other, but they're bankrolling opposing sides. And in particular, we'll see this in two main places we'll talk about a lot in the future, Vietnam and Afghanistan. So that concludes our session on the origins of the Cold War. In future installments, we'll talk about the problem with a black and white approach to politics during the Cold War at home, when we talk about Joseph McCarthy and the phenomenon of McCarthyism, and we'll also talk about how containment and this desire to stop the spread of communism will get us involved in what is essentially a decolonizationist movement in Vietnam.